Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, welcome to this Monday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up on today's program, you know, do voters really pay attention to all those pre-election polls and are the results really a reflection of how the voters feel? Atlanta-based campaign strategist Fred Hicks breaks down the hit and misses of pre-election polling. Speaking of data, a new report about women, women in the workplace reveals women are struggling with their careers even more than last year. We'll talk about that and we'll talk about how the pandemic is affecting women in the workplace from all levels. Those conversations are coming up in a moment. But first, this jury selection is continuing into its third week in the murder trial of three men accused of killing unarmed jogger Ahmaud Arbery. From our WABE newsroom, Lisa Hagen reports lawyers are still sifting through a massive potential jury pool of 1,000 local residents. The court has not yet qualified the 64 jurors it needs to proceed. But this week, the prosecution and defense are expected to make their final decisions on a jury and alternates in the high-profile case. In this small, coastal community, many potential jurors have been struck because they know either the defendants or Ahmaud Arbery. Nearly everyone has heard of the case, if not watched the viral video of the killing. And a significant number of people have been dismissed because they say they're already firmly convinced the three men are guilty. Judge Timothy Walmsley has said he hopes to have the trial finished before Thanksgiving, but jury selection is already taking longer than expected. Lisa Hagan, WABE News. And in other news, starting today, Fulton County schools will make masks optional for individual schools that can maintain low rates of coronavirus infections. COVID-19 cases have been dropping in the district after a late summer charge. School district officials say masks will become optional for all students, staff, and faculty in a month now that a Pfizer vaccine has been approved for kids ages 5 and up. However, within Fulton County Schools, they say they will continue to encourage physical distancing and hand washing. And any positive COVID-19 cases will be reported to the parent and employee portal. Also, fly me to the moon, or at least out of the country. An increase in international travel from Atlanta will continue to be a key part of Delta Airlines' recovery from the pandemic slowdown. That's according to Jeff Davidman, the vice president for state and local affairs at the Atlanta-based airline giant. He says the airlines saw that happen this summer. Whenever a country opened, we put service in. So, you know, a great example is we hadn't done Atlanta to Athens, Greece but Greece was, I think, the second country in Europe to open up to vaccinated travelers. And as soon as it opened, we put in Atlanta, Athens service. And it was great it was because people just wanted to travel and they needed to go where they could get to. Well, I'd like to get to South Africa, so I'll check that out. Earlier this month, Delta CEO said passengers should expect long lines at airports for the busy holiday travel season, especially after the U.S. lifts restrictions for vaccinated people. 
And finally, the Atlanta Braves will have to win the World Series in Houston after last night's 9-5 loss to the Astros at Truist Park. Atlanta leads the series now three games to two. Adam Duvall had a first-inning grand slam in the game for Atlanta, and everybody was happy jumping up and down, especially in my house. But Houston mounted a big rally to keep their hopes alive. Duvall credits the Astros for not giving up. It's a nine-inning game, and, and they didn't quit. They uh, they kept fighting. Um, you know, we, we just – we weren't able to, uh, you know, get it going again and, and keep the pressure on. Game six is Tuesday night in Houston. The Braves are hosting a watch party inside Truist Park. It's an exciting series, that's for sure. Stay tuned. Closer Look is back in a moment. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. And Closer Look continues now. This is 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Depending on the source, it's estimated anywhere from 1.8 to 2 million women dropped out of the labor force due to the pandemic. It's also reported that the participation of women in the workplace is the lowest since 1988. Now comes another report revealing women are struggling with their careers even more than last year. That information comes from the annual Women in the Workplace report from McKinsey and Company and the women's advocacy nonprofit Lean In. But we're going to talk more not only about those findings, but the overall state of women in America's workforce. I'm joined now by Dr. Lauren Tucker, CEO of Do What Matters. Welcome to the program. Thank you, Rose. Glad to be here. Let's start with this, uh, Dr. Tucker. I just want to get your thoughts regarding the pandemic and how it has impacted women who've dropped out of the workforce, particularly when you hear that 1.8 to 2 million uh, women that dropped out. Your thoughts on all of that? that? Maybe that's not surprising to you. It's not surprising, but it's shocking and it's concerning and it should concern all of us. We are becoming less competitive globally because women are not participating. As you mentioned, we're at a 30 year low of women's participation in the labor force. And, you know, during the last 30 to 40 years, women's participation in the labor force has been a key amplifier in our GDP. Mm -hmm. And it's also helped to raise the standard of living. So we need to get women back into the workforce, working moms back into the workforce. And that means we need to focus on what we, what we like to call this century's issues. And that is childcare and women's empowerment in the workplace. Because if we don't do that, the entire country's uh, economic future is in jeopardy. So in other words, you're saying, yes, we know the pandemic still continues, but that's not the only metric that you're paying attention to. You're looking at child care issues. You're looking at equity, which we'll get into a little bit later in the work in the workplace, because all of that matters. It does. And, and we're really talking about in broader terms, caregiving. 
women are the primary caregivers. We have a hugely aging population. Women are the primary caregivers there as well. So we need to focus on the issues that are going to help women get back into the workforce and live up to their fullest potential. Child care, uh, additional you know, care for uh the, the elderly, mm -hmm. as well as, you know, we, we talk about, we talk about uh, healthcare for all as if somehow this is an issue that is from the 1950s. And we have all these BS terms that people like love to throw at, 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 at folks that are uh, advocating for that, you know, whether it's, oh, it's socialism, it's communism. No, this is the 21st century and we're 21 years into it. We need to have modern, humane healthcare access because that is also a women's empowerment issue. How optimistic are you that that significant percentage, that 1.8 to 2 million, will actually return to the workforce? Well, you know, I just got out of a few meetings with some clients uh, this past week and people are like, like everyone, they're having a hard time getting people back to work. The jobs are there and this is a knowledge and culture-based economy and women are central to that work. So, you know, as I've told my clients, if we all built public policy and workplace policies around uh, the needs of working women and in the needs of working moms in particular, the entire uh, experience in corporate America, as well as in this in this country, would be more humane and uh, for everyone. Those are conversations you're having with your clients. I'm curious, uh, just from a personal level, Dr. Tucker, what conversations have you had with fellow women in general about not just the pandemic in their careers, but their overall state, how they feel about what they're going to be doing now? Because the pandemic has opened up a lot, pulled, pulled the blinds back for a lot of people to say, you know what, maybe I need to do something else or I'm getting a clearer picture of what I don't want to do, <laughs> you know? Yeah, I think here, here's what I think is is really happening. <clears throat> and, and this is something that I've been trying to get out there by any means necessary. So thank you, Rose, for interviewing me, me today. But we have to have different conversations. The conversations that are happening, I don't care whether you're red, blue, or purple, the conversations we're having in state houses and governor's mansions and in Washington are just the wrong conversations. They're completely disconnect, disconnected from the experiences that people are having on the ground today. And we need to change those conversations. And women's empowerment is at the center of that uh, new conversation that we need to have. They are going to be the key to driving our comp global competitiveness. And women know that, they know what they need, but they need to start talking about it that way and not getting caught up in this old school 20th century, um, you know, red versus blue, conservatives versus, uh, you know, liberal conversation. Because at the end of the day, our politics and our polit political conversations need to be different and women need to join together to fight for what they need to reach their fullest potential in the 21st century, because that's what we're going to, to, to that, that's what we're going to need to do to be competitive globally. Well, look, Dr. Tucker, we're in this space now, particularly after last year with the social, the, the, the protest for social justice, racial justice. So now we're in this space of DEI land. And, and I've said this before. I don't know if there's another term. I'm kind of tired of DEI and I'll tell people why, because I'll get an email. You can talk about DEI all you want to, diversity, equity, and inclusion, but it's much more than check 
I got it. I got this in our check this box, check this box, check out everyone wants. We're DEI. We're having all this stuff. But at the end of the day, it is about execution and it's about continuing that. Not just having one Zoom call with everybody in a company, listen to a DEI expert and then it's over. Well, you know, first of all, Rose, I completely agree with you. We are what we call an inclusion first organization. I will say this, we focus on using inclusion strategies to uncover the operational inefficiencies of corporate America. And that's really where we, our focus should be on reducing the, the, the operational inefficiencies that not only invite exclusion and bias to come in, but really diversity issues, um, you know, diversity issues and inclusion issues, they're just symptoms of these operational inefficiencies that corrode the creativity and innovation that this country needs to be globally competitive. And that means globally competitive in an increasingly multicultural, transcultural and global world, which we are in, whether you like it or not, you can argue, you can talk about walls and all kinds of things, but we have been in a global world and a global economy since Marco Polo brought noodles back from China. Really? Yes. I mean, you know, when you think about what happened in in the, the Renaissance and the Middle Ages, those were highly multicultural trade routes, uh, transcultural trade routes. We were already in a multicultural and transcultural and global world. So we need to start having conversations that are built in reality, not in the fakery of, of politics. Okay, but here we go. And, and I've had this conversation before. You can talk about initiatives all you want, and people will say, well, you can implement this, that, and the third in terms of, you know, your workplace culture and all that. But if there's no policy, if there's no legislation to back that up, when women and people of color or any other, you know, isms that we're all trying to face, when that happens, then it just, there's no... There's nothing for people then to fall back on. Not to say that you want to go initially file a lawsuit against your company or whatever, but what what are the resources? What's that structure that can uphold folks to do all those things that you just talked about to do in the workplace? But if there's no if there's nothing there to support them, then folks get discouraged and they leave the workplace. And we're talking about women. So exactly. So what we do is work with our clients, um, you know, work with corporations to redesign their processes and their systems that, you know, need to be renovated, need to be reinvented, not just because it's about diversity, equity and inclusion. Again, we're inclusion first, but because they are operational inefficiencies that are preventing companies from growing and being competitive. When we talk to CEOs and presidents about that, and we mm -hmm. say, and, the fo and our focus is on helping talent realize their fullest potential, um, we like to use the metaphor of canaries in the coal mine. And we're like, don't invite the canaries in until you get the coal mines working more efficiently. Because at the end of the day, it is about fixing the mines, not not the canaries, certainly, and not the coal and not the miners. We need to fix the mine. And that means systems and processes need to change in order to um, get the right people doing the right jobs, elevating their relevant differences so that we can create products, services, and content that that is what, what we like to call memorable, mm -hmm. meaningful, and remarkable to an increasingly multicultural and global market. 
The voice you hear is Dr. Lauren Tucker, CEO of Do What Matters, and we're talking about not only women in the workplace, that women have left the workplace, but what organizations can do to ensure that there is equity in the workplace. There was something curious about that report I read because it talked about how, I'm going to quote them here, at every step up the corporate ladder, women of color lose ground to white women and men of color. And I'm looking, and, and we'll have a link to this on our website, and I'm, and I'm looking at this graph here, and it's still, and I know you've, this is not lost on you when we talk about income inequality and, and when you look at the rate of what women earn on the dollar as opposed to, to men, that is something that's got a little bit better, but not much. So here again, the question lies, how do we widen that gap for women of color and, and, and also white women and, and men of color? Is it, are you going back to saying it's all about changing the mindset? Is that your answer? No, <laughs> no. Okay, I'm glad. We cause... don't we, we don't leave it to mindsets. What we do <laughs> is yeah we don't yeah mindsets are not good for us. What we do is come in and we put in procedures, policies, new policies in place to make first of all eliminate the ghost rules of the workplace right the, the goalposts are always moving on people we want to make sure that we are what we call de-biasing processes making sure that we're focusing on really getting the best talent in the right how jobs. do you do that how do you tell a client to do that focusing you know, on the it, de-biases <clears throat> And what we what we do is we show them how by doing that we actually increase their operational efficiencies so that they can drive more growth. When we talk to CEOs and presidents, I always start out with, so what's your primary? What is your what is your primary job to be done? Like for you, what is the job that you that you probably top of your list? Mm -hmm. And inevitably they they say growth. And what I always say is wrong. That is not your number one job. Your number one job is to make sure that uh, that talent, that you have the best talent that you can get. And getting the best talent, we, we have so many dumb ways of trying to hire smart people. And at the end of the day, we need to reinvent those ways to make sure our processes are truly um, de-biased, meaning that we're getting... We're, we're judging on performance, we're hiring on performance-based criteria, and not all of these, you know, referrals and relationships. And I would argue that it's not racism or sexism that is, 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 uh, that is really creating these, these gaps and bringing in this exclusion and bias. It's cronyism and nepotism. Mm -hmm. If you look at a lot of that, it's cronyism and nepotism. We love comfort and familiarity. We keep hiring the same people that over and over again. And we need, we design processes that actually short circuit and rewire. I have a question from a listener who wants to know, do you also relay this message to boards? Because, because sometimes Rose boards are the problem as well. Oh, the boards are absolutely the problem. We have had um, less access to boards. A lot of times we work with some independent companies that actually don't have boards. We're actually trying to get the boards put in place for uh, uh, governance uh, reasons as well. But boards need to change. They are primarily based, um, you know, board recruitment is primarily based on criteria that actually does not necessarily drive growth for the company. We need to get that message out that you really need people who understand this marketplace that we're in today 
and largely that's a lot of women women understand that women understand you know consumerism and that's mm -hmm. what our economy is actually based on we need to start seeing more women and more people of color on boards that understand the future of the marketplace there in that report that we're talking about there was something else that stood out to me and it talked about that women are rising to the moment as strong leaders but their work is going unrecognized and if those if that is coming from a survey of women that they that they polled here then that goes back to what you've been talking about what should directors or CEOs let's start with the CEOs cuz they're the they're the people that set the culture although I did have an argument with a CEO one time that told me that it wasn't their job to do that. That's another conversation. Oh, but okay. <laughs> yeah, he's wrong. He's wrong, Rose. I will just say he's wrong. Ah, the Dr. Tucker, it was a woman that told me that. Very interesting, she, huh? She's wrong as well. They're both wrong. All of them wrong. Yeah, culture and talent, primary job of every CEO. I agree. Um, but let's talk about that because that could lead then to the, one of the other findings, which talked about burnout. And burnout is, obviously, you've been, especially during the pandemic, and I'm going to use myself as an example because I think it's only fair. Last year during 2020 and covering not only the pandemic and the protests, I lost my sister, I lost my brother, a lot of that. I experienced this, but I still kept doing my job. And I talked to so many of my friends and, and colleagues, women, women of color, women in general, who felt the same way. There was this burnout, but they mm -hmm. felt like there was no support. Yes, yes. And one of the things that I will tell you that's critical to this, and I find it interesting, and actually your last comment about the person who said culture's my, not, my, not my job, I would argue that we are in this country suffering from a lack of real leadership, of really understanding what leadership looks like. And the primary job of leadership is to create vision. Mm -hmm. When we know where we're going, you know, have you ever been in a car where you haven't been, you're going to someplace you've never been before. Notice how long it seems to take to get to that place. <laughs> yeah. Right. Because you've never been there before. So you're not quite sure where you're going. You might have the GPS on, but you don't have landmarks that you recognize because you've never been there before. So it always seems to take you so much longer. When you go there again, you're like, why did I feel like it took like an hour when it's only 10 minutes? Mm -hmm. That is the key to good leadership and visioning, right? It's more exhausting when you don't have a vision, how you're plugging in as an individual employee, and it makes it very, very challenging. And of course, we all as individuals have a hard time envisioning how we're, how we're going to live after COVID. So that's a double whammy and makes it exhausting to even think about what we're doing every day. Well, and, and, and before we wrap up, based on, our, based on everything you've just said, and this goes back to that first question, then if we aren't seeing women coming back into the workplace, that 1.8 to 2 million, then how do you gauge the success and effectiveness of everything that you want companies to do as you just talked about? Because in order to do that, you got to have women in the workplace. Or do you think they make the changes and then they're able to attract and recruit because they'll have a different culture, they'll have different initiatives to getting more women within their organization and women in management positions? Is that what you're saying here? The critical piece is we work with one company at a time, making sure that they are positioned to win the war for talent so that they can get that so they they can drive the growth they need to drive. And that will increase diversity and representation. 
Now, you know, I've talked to my, my clients and I've said, these are issues within this, this particular corporation that we can address, but obviously public policy is a major partner in this. Mm -hmm. And we're not seeing the kind of support that corporations need to make sure that they can achieve that kind of workplace representation that's going to drive growth and increase their operational efficiencies. Let me ask you this. Client comes to you, the Rose Scott, you know, hotels for Weber Cats. And I've I've got some issues. And I said, look, help me with this. What's the first thing you tell me is there an analysis that you do with the, or some type of self-analysis or assessment that you do with the company or just with the company leaders? What's your process in all of this? We start with, a, with what we call a simple desired future question. We ask every, every person on the leadership team, and we also have a, a, a survey that does this with the general, the general employees. <clears throat> and what we ask is the miracle question. We said, if you were to go to sleep tonight and a miracle would happen hmm. and you wake up the next morning, tell us what the five things that you would see that would tell you that miracle had happened. And it's really interesting because most people are never asked that question. Most CEOs are really surprised at that question. Uh, the presidents are surprised at that question. But what it does is it starts to focus people on the future and not on the past. We focus a lot on the past in this country and it's not gonna get us anywhere, right? You can't drive using the rear view mirror. You gotta look out the windshield. So we get everybody focused on what is it that they will see as success when they wake up the next morning. And what we find actually is that there's a lot of consensus, not only among the leadership, but among employees and among multicultural employees, right? Mm -hmm. So what we find is there's a lot more consensus around where everybody wants to go. And I often say, you don't, you don't use a GPS to find out how you got lost. You use a <laughs> GPS to figure out where you want to go. Absolutely. And then we can debate side streets and expressways and tollways, et cetera. But let's have the right debates and let's focus on building solutions for the future rather than referencing problems of the past. Because you know, finding out how you got lost, it just, it creates conditions under which everybody's blaming one another. And that's where we are as a country right now. We're spending so much time in the blame game. We're not getting anywhere. But can you, but you do have to know some of the failures, if that's a correct word, failures or some of the challenges of that company in the past though, correct? To, you we, don't, you don't harbor, will, harbor on it, but. We don't harbor on it, but we start with where we want to go first, because sometimes where we want to go has nothing to do with all the reasons we got lost. Hmm. So we, we start, you know, focusing on the solutions because we'll get there faster if we're not constantly looking in the rear view mirror. So there may be, you know, I talk about it this way. You don't, you know, all of us, we go grocery shopping. Mm -hmm. Right. We either make a list in our heads or we make a list, an actual list. We don't make a grocery list based on what we don't want. There are 300,000 SKUs. You're not going to go into the <laughs> grocery store and go, oh, I don't want this. I don't want this. I don't want this. Right. But I like to say, you know, yes, I do have a problem. I've run out of milk or I do have a problem. I've run out of sugar. But I can tell you this. A Snickers bar is not related to any problem I've had. It's just, <laughs> I want it. That's the future I see. So I'm going to put a Snickers bar in my GPS, right? So, you know, I think we have to really 
start to be much more solutions focused mm-hmm. because when we do that, we get to the, we get to where we want to go faster. Mm. And that's the key. Someone also sent me an email saying, I'd love to hire your guest, but I bet she's expensive. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, let me, let me be clear. Um, yeah, we all have to eat and pay our rent. That's for sure. <laughs> There's your but answer. I- Emailer, (laughs) (laughs) But I will say we are on a mission and it's about the mission, not the money. Um, I got to, you know, definitely I got to pay my people and I, 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 I very much operate as inclusion first uh, with my team and I have a great multicultural team and they range from being very progressive and liberal to very conservative. Why I've got white men, I got black, black women, I got people in between. Have you ever had um, to do an, uh, an assessment of your own company in terms of DEI and all that? I, I do it every day. <laughs> I do it every day because it is a daily, it's, a, it's like a daily affirmation. I think we all have to, and, and I've had, I've had my, my team push back on me when they feel like I haven't heard them or they don't feel valued or what have you. And I'm willing to have those conversations because this, this company wouldn't work without them. Good so for them. I would, Good for them. Give them a raise, yeah. Dr. Tucker. <laughs> I, listen, I, 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 I'm giving them almost the entire month of December off and uh because they've worked hard really you know all year long and my my feeling is i can't do anything without them and Mm -hmm. i have to learn from them as much as they learn from me so it's about the mission Mm -hmm. and they understand the vision that's my job is to make sure they understand the vision so we are all rowing in the same direction but also we're we're all contributing to that journey so please, if anybody is interested in, in learning more about oh, us. Oh, don't try involved. to plug your company on my show. Well, Dr. I, you know what's funny is I, I would say this, Rose, rather than plug the company, because quite frankly, I'm looking to like, you know, my, my whole team reminds me of my real job, my real ambition, which is get enough, fund my retirement and move to Panama. But, <laughs> but I will say this, we are about creating inclusion one company at a time. It is a mission, um, and we want to make sure that we can do our part. Sure. Dr. Lauren Tucker, CEO of Do What Matters, we've been talking about women in the workplace and whether or not we'll get back the 1.8 to 2 million women who left, who have left the workplace during the pandemic. Dr. Tucker will bring you back at the beginning of the year to focus on 2022. Thank you so much. Good conversation. Thank you very much for having me. And you're tuned to 90.1 WABE. This is Closer Look, and I'm Rose Scott. Here are some questions for you, the voter. Yes, you out there. If you're a voter, raise your hand, but not if you're you know, like driving or riding a bike. Do you pay attention to all those pre-election polls, whether it's national or locally based? And are the results really a reflection of the electorate? Well, that's a good question. And you know what? We've had so many polls regarding tomorrow's municipal elections. Atlanta-based campaign strategist and analyst Fred Hicks joins me now to break down the hit and misses of all that pre-election polling. Fred, welcome. Fred, are you there? I should have had a poll that told me Fred was not going to be there. I am. Can you hear me, Fred? <laughs> no, I can't hear you, Fred. <laughs> <laughs> Well, thank you. It's glad, it's, I'm glad to be here and, and um, 
Good to be back with you. You know, Fred, I, I, it, it dawned on me, all the conversations we've had, there's a question I've never asked you. Oh, what's that? Why do you do this? <laughs> why are you in the oh. polls and campaign strategy? And what, why, what is it about this that you like? Oh, I love numbers. I love data. You know, by training, I'm a demographer. So I went to school for uh, demography. My master's mm-hmm. is in international affairs and demography. So I started out designing surveys and data collection tools and I always loved politics. So uh, we transitioned into doing that. And we still do stuff outside of politics. But, um, you know, data collection is very, very important. You know, we have a, a saying in demography that if you don't count it, then it doesn't count. So that's kind of my uh, my, ba- my parenting cool. orientation towards that's it. That's pretty cool. Who made that up? Who came up with that? Is there, is there like an OG of is there like an OG of demography? Somebody we should know. <laughs> there, are, there are there are some uh, some OGs of it, you know, for sure. So, but it's it's a um, it's a great field. Usually, you'll see, we're usually housed in one of two sort of larger disciplines, either sociology mm-hmm. or public health. And so, um, and then you'll see us to a smaller degree in education, but generally, we're attached to a center for uh, demography, public health, or in sociology. Let me ask you this. Someone listening says, okay, but there are so many polls out there. How do I know as the consumer of this information, should I be looking for something that is, a, I guess, a criteria for how credible a poll is? Or should we assume that all these, whoever is doing the poll, that these are legit folks, right? Absolutely. You know, when we talk about polling and politics, there are two real sort of categories of polling. There are what we call public polls, and then there are the internal polls that campaigns do mm-hmm. pay pay significant, amount, significant amounts of money to do. The public polls uh, from independent groups tend to be more reliable than the ones that are released by a campaign. No campaign says, oh my gosh, we're tanking. We just, there's, there's no way, there's no path to victory. Um, every, every campaign seeks to paint itself in a very, in the most positive light. So I personally tend to put more weight on the independent polls that are conducted by media outlets um, or universities or well-established, um, highly credible pollsters. But with the internal that the camp- campaigns do and with the public, are they not surveying the, the same folks? Particularly if you're talking about Atlanta. Let's look at Atlanta. Right. So how, how so would it be? Are, Go ahead. So there are a few things you look that you for which you want to look when you're trying to determine whether or not a poll is, is uh, accurate. Number one, does it make sense? So, for example, if someone said that cobra snakes are the most popular pets for in, in, in America, well, that doesn't make sense. But if they said that cavapoos are the cutest, you know, dogs on the, on the planet, then you might go for that, right? That makes a little bit more sense. Yes, because but, that's the kind of dog you have. I mean, I might be a little biased towards <laughs> towards towards cavapoos for sure, uh, which then does lead to the second point about bias. Um, so, when you look at your survey. You want to look at the how the questions are ordered mm-hmm. um, and how they're structured. So, you know, do you believe that that just because someone has been arrested three times means that they are a criminal? Well, gosh, now I planned it in your mind mm-hmm. that someone has been arrested three times. So, the wording of the question, the sequencing of the questions, and then the other thing you want to you want to consider is when you look at the responses or the respondents, do they look like the population overall? Mm-hmm. So, you know, the AJC had a poll in the Atlanta mayor's race about two months ago that they did in conjunction with the University of Georgia. Mm-hmm. That was fairly that, that looked fairly, fairly solid um, on the surface and even one level deep. 
But then when I really dug into it, one of the things that I noticed was that about 40% or so of the respondents uh, self-reported an income of over $100,000 and I think 32% over $150,000. Well, that's not reflective of the overall Atlanta electorate. I mean, that's skewed. That's what we call a skew. And that's skewed towards higher income voters. And so when you see something like that, you then look at the breakdown and say, okay, um, how... How do people perform within each subset? So in that particular poll, I think it had Kasim Reed at 24, 25%, Felicia Moore at 20%, mm-hmm. uh, Sharon Gay at 6 Andre at 5 Andre Dickens at 5 But um, when you looked at the breakdown of the by income, below 99,000, Kasim Reed was ahead of, of Felicia Moore. In that 75 to 99 range, they were tied. And then over 100,000, Felicia Moore far up paced Kasim Reed. So if you adjusted that to a normal curve, mm-hmm. then Kasim Reed mm-hmm. at that point would have actually been a little bit better because Felicia Moore would have been a little bit worse in that poll. Uh, but then their follow-up to it, when you look and you look at the income breakdown, Felicia Moore had made a lot of ground, made up a lot of ground in between um, in the group uh, uh, people who make less than seventy-five thousand. But you know, those are the kinds of things that you want to look for, and then you can make adjustments when you do what we call weighting. Because a lot of times when you collect the data, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> it, it, you'll have an oversampling, so there'll be more uh, women than, than men uh, in the population, or you'll see more, in this case, you'll see an income skewed or something like that. So then you weight it, which means that you, you use a, we use a formula to make the results look more like the overall population. And then, then we look at the results and report those results. So just like an, it's, it's an adjustment. Can't that be misleading though, Fred? Well, it can be, it can be. So that's why you really try to do a that's that's why how you collect your data on the front end is so important so there are some basic rules right so your sampling needs to be randomized as opposed to picking a particular group and then you know everyone has to have basically an equal chance of completing and there are just some basic rules of data collection around that but how you collect your data has everything to do with what your data says to you when you get it back so i would say this that people a polling takes a beating every single election mm-hmm. cycle. And people are like, oh, polling doesn't work, but it's a necessary evil. Uh, the polling actually tends to be pretty accurate. The pollster might not be very good or very solid, or maybe people don't want to hear what it's saying. But the reality is that polling itself, it's more difficult now because um, you used to be able to collect everything on like a uh, by telephone, like right. auto call or a live call. And People are less and less likely to respond, so we have to collect stuff from from online surveys and text surveys and stuff like that. But generally speaking, the polling tends to be pretty pretty accurate when it's done right. Well, let me let me ask you this because often we see about the margin of error, and that mm-hmm. margin of error <laughs> we could go back to 2016 if you want to talk about margins of error. But often people will say, "Well, now I'm looking at this margin of error, and if it's something, and, and look, we've seen a margin where it was like." 13, 10 to 13. I'm like, well, they come on now. <laughs> come on. Right. Now. What, what y'all doing? You know, um, if you, right. for the consu- for the, the voter out there that's looking up these polls and you talked a little bit about what to look for in terms of a, a credible poster, what else should that voter be looking at, paying attention to? Is it the, the, the questions that were asked, whom they were asking the questions yeah. to? Yeah, so you just mentioned margin of error. The first thing about that is anything beyond a 5% margin of error, plus or minus, just toss it out. And the reality is that you really want to look at polls that have 
uh, below a 4%, so 4% plus or minus. And for the audience, what that means is, let's say um, you all are trying to decide who's going to be the next president of the NPR fan club, and <laughs> one person is at 30%, another person's at 27%, but the margin of error is 4%, that means that the person with 30 could be as high as 34 or as low as 26. So that's why we call it plus minus, so that there's a 4% range. So when you're looking at polls when it, as it relates to politics, you want to look at um, whether or not the, the leader is outside the margin of error. So to give you an example, going back to that AJC poll in mm -hmm. September, if you adjusted the income curve to a, to a normal distribution or something that reflects Atlanta, Kasim Reed at that point actually would have been outside the margin of error and, be, and ahead of, of Felicia Moore. Now, again, with the poll, with their update, um, if you adjust it, then it's it's certainly is they, they're both within the margin of error and they're pretty much they're pretty much tied. So you want to look at margin of error. You want to look at the sample size. And people always say, well, how in the world can you have a 750 person survey in a city of 500,000 mm -hmm. and say that that is mm -hmm. accurate? But again, it, it's like taking it's like when they do a blood culture when you go to the doctor. They don't draw all of your blood to see whether or not you have an infection. They take out a, a portion of your blood sure, and test it and sure. say, okay, here it is. Same thing. So as long as the people, as long as your data collection is solid and the sample looks like the overall population, so roughly the same number of women, that you, percentage of women that you see in the overall population are in the survey, same number by race and, or percentage by race. And in a place like Atlanta where you have very different voting patterns based on genetics, Geography. Mm -hmm. So even mm -hmm. if the race and age and gender is fairly is fairly uh, normal, if you're over if you oversample Buckhead or the East Side versus Southwest, you, that's gonna that's gonna skew your 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 results. So you want to look for what we call demographics. That's age, gender, race, and you also want to factor in geographic data. So that is what part of the town or the state of the country is being surveyed. So. You know, someone we know that that New York, California are very different politically than Florida and Texas. They're all big, massive states that are fairly diverse, but their patterns are very different. So you have to look at that. The voice you hear is Fred Hicks. He's an Atlanta based campaign strategist and analyst. And we're talking about pre-election polls. Do they matter? Do you pay attention to them? Are they ever right? Let me ask you this. Let's talk about that undecided when you see in a poll, because we saw in the poll there was an undecided in this mayoral election that was at 41%. First of all, did that number surprise you? Because it surprised me. Uh, it did not. It did not surprise me. Um, 41%? You know, 41% did not surprise me. I, I've been doing politics in the city since 2009. So what is that? 2009, 13, 14. So four cycles. And I will say that in this cycle, there is less sort of energy, excitement, engagement from everyday voters is not a topic of conversation um, in, uh, in Publix like, or Kroger like it was in 2017 or in 2009. Mm -hmm. This feels more like 2013, uh, when you, which was uh, sort of an off-year election where the mayor was up for re-election, won by, what, 80-something percent. So there just wasn't as much of conversation and engagement. And it certainly is not what we saw last year, where everyone everywhere was talking about politics. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. it didn't surprise me. 
Let me ask you this, Fred, because oh. for that 41%, does that mean that undecided, that 41% undecided, could it mean that either they won't vote or when they go in and make, maybe tomorrow when they go in, they're just going to, whatever hits them, then they're just going to go with that? Without mentioning any names, could that favor a any candidate when there's a 41% if you are the front runner? Does that 41% undecided favor one or the other? Yeah, for sure. So if they are truly undecided, and let's let's talk about that for a second. So you have people who say they're undecided and they're not really undecided, and you have people who are really undecided. So in political polling world, one of the most famous examples of this was the L.A. race. I think it was 84 with Bill Bradley, mm-hmm. and we call it the Bradley effect, where, where the polling showed that he was going to win, running away. But that was because white voters in L.A. did not want to say that they were not going to vote for a black person. Another example of this is nationally 2016. Um, many people said, oh, gosh, you know, the polling had it wrong. Hillary's going to win. Um, and Hillary did win the national vote. Uh, but if you when you looked at the when you looked at the state by state vote totals, you saw some some wild variations. And that was because people did not want to. They felt bad about saying they were voting for Donald Trump. And so you his vote was under was undercounted, particularly in the Republican primary. Um, and so people, you, you miss that. And so when you see something like that, again, I talk about how you structure your poll is very important. You have something inside of a poll that we call inter-rater reliability and internal validity. Mm-hmm. It's basically where you're asking the same question in different ways, at least two times, ideally three times. And so you get to pick up on things like, if I were to say to you, are you voting for Donald Trump? No, I'm not voting for Donald Trump or I'm undecided. But if I ask you later on, do you feel that that America has lost its way under democratic control? Yes. Do you prefer someone who's who has a strong business background and speaks in short, punchy sentences? Well, yes, okay, well then you're probably going for Donald Trump, even though you did not say when I asked you directly, were you voting for Donald Trump? So, so, so you have that sort of stuff. Let me ask you, so then are you saying that for the undecided may not necessarily mean they're undecided, they just may, don't want to give their their choice because they don't want to be viewed a certain way because that's what the Bradley effect sort of mm-hmm. alluded to that mm-hmm. they said they, I sound like some people in my family, they said later it was sort <laughs> of <laughs> revealed by the experts that some white folks didn't want to say they were not supporting Bradley in LA, in LA cause they didn't want to be viewed as a racist or what have you or politically incorrect right. or whatever. Right. And again, in 2016, people who felt like they, they didn't want to be viewed as an extremist, so they, they didn't want to acknowledge that they were voting to a pollster that they were voting for Trump. So bringing this to Atlanta, and generally what happens is if you're trying to detect an undercurrent of that, you have to look at the candidate that um, has more controversy around them. And then that's the candidate. If, 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 there are people, if you're going to find that quote unquote Bradley effect, it's going to be for that particular candidate. So again, like a, um, you know, someone that the media has, has really sort of lampooned or someone for whom it's not considered cool to vote for them. Um, you, you don't see that emerge with popular candidates. So Obama 08, heck yeah, I'm voting for Obama. Woo! People aren't going to lie about that, but they will not tell, they, they would rather say I'm undecided than to say I'm, I'm, I'm voting for someone that has some controversy around them. So now... So in this case... Go, go ahead. ahead. No, go, go ahead and finish. No. So um, the other part of your question was, does that mean they're not going to vote? 
I think, uh, generally speaking, I think that if someone's undecided the day before the election, then their their decision is not necessarily for whom they're going to vote, but whether or not they're going to vote. And so can someone give them a reason to vote? Let's switch for a moment and talk about then what candidates do with this information, particularly with that 41 percent undecided. We're talking about the mayoral race. So if you are a candidate, whether you're polling high or polling low, what is your strategy then for trying to grab that 41 percent of the undecided voter? Can is that is that a viable option for them to even get some of those votes? Because you don't really know. Well, you know, you're targeting the undecided, but you don't. Unless the poll shows you where the undecided are located. Are they in Buckhead? Are they in southwest Atlanta? I don't know. Do polls show where the undecided are, are mostly have a high percentage of? Mm-hmm. So that's when you get into the cross tabs. So when you're looking at a poll, you have two things. You have what are considered or what we call the top lines. So the, that's um, who's in first, second, third. Um, your, what was the breakdown of the poll in terms of the demographics and the geographics? Um, but then you get into the cross tabs, and so you zero in on the undecideds and look at what issues are important to them. How do they feel about various things, and who are they, and where do they live? And from that, you can build what we call a profile, and you can use that profile to to, to go after them, to go after, to construct your messaging, to revisit your themes, or even your your, your tactics. So maybe the people who are undecided, but they say they're going to vote are all under 30 so and they they they're, they're cord cutters so well maybe i don't need to put as much money on tv mm-hmm. i need to put more money in on youtube ads and uh, on digital and um and things like that meeting where they are or maybe the undecideds are over 65 and live in southwest atlanta okay well if that's the case how do they consume their information they still have landlines. They still like direct mail. They still watch a lot of TV. Mm-hmm. Mm, texting them doesn't make a lot of sense because mm-hmm. they, 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 they're not big texters. So you look at you look at um, the cross tabs on the undecided and you build your or revise your communication strategy and your communications tactics uh, around around the undecided. And you try to make a, make a push from there. So one of the other things that you do in a campaign is you'll also do what we call track polling. So in a, in, a, in a situation like this, if I were with one of the campaigns, what I would have been doing is, okay, we have 41% undecided, so we're going we're gonna to test and, and, and tweak some things, and we're going to survey this group of undecideds only every single week to see if, we can make, if, we're, if we're making any kind of movement with them and to know whether or not what we're doing is working. You know what, before I let you go, and I got to say this, um, the direct mailers, uh, first of all, there are a lot of them. Is that effective? Because, goodness, every time you go to the mailbox, my goodness. And the, <laughs> well, and the, and the good old fashioned, you know, lawn sign. And tell and tell and I don't know if you, 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 I know you're not working with any candidate for running for mayor, but all these candidates, tell them to come pick up all these yard signs. After tomorrow, I don't care. I don't care if you're city council. I don't care what you're running for. Come get them because they all over the place. Well, you got to leave them out. There's going to be a runoff, at least one. Probably well, but there's some people you know you're so. not going to win. So come and pick up your <laughs> sign off my off my street. Well, I'll tell you, you know, voters noticed that um, there was a race in the cab a couple of years ago where someone lost and they went out and picked up their signs the very next day. 
and there was a lot of chatter about it on social media. And then they made that a, camp, a point of their campaign uh, the next time they ran. Like, I respect the community. I respect the beautification of it. I was out here picking up my signs right away, da, 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 and they won. The next <laughs> go round, that was a part of it. So, ah, a strategy. Candidate, okay. Yeah, absolutely. So, any candidate out there listening, listen. A couple of things. Number one, pay your bills. Number two, <laughs> what are you um, that's another shout out to all the <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but number two, <laughs> number two, number two, really, you know, if you don't win tomorrow, uh, you don't make the runoff tomorrow. I think uh, two things I would say. Number one, do pick up your stuff right away. Then number two, you know, set aside a little money in your budget to say thank you to the voters. Um, we don't hear from people when they lose. And so <laughs> well, you know, okay. reaching out or something like that would be a really good thing to do. Atlanta-based political strategist and analyst Fred Hicks. Fred, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. You're going to join us Wednesday uh, for a recap on all this. I really appreciate it, Fred. Oh Well, hopefully we'll have a vote total by Wednesday, so we'll see. Bye, Fred. <laughs> thank you. Bye. <laughs> That's it for this edition of Closer Look. A reminder to let us know your thoughts on today's program or any other. Just send me an email, which y'all all do, and I appreciate it, including the person that told me to stop saying y'all can't help it i've lived in atlanta now so i'm sorry rose at wabe.org and if you missed any of today's program it's online wabe.org slash closer look and of course weeknights at 7 p.m as well as in our podcast subscribe to close closer look wherever you like stay tuned to 90.1 wabe atlanta's choice for npr i'm rose scott Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The Gold Dome Scramble podcast is now plugged in, a WABE politics podcast. New name, same on-the-ground reporting from us, WABE politics reporters Sam Greenglass and Raul Bally. We'll cover local, state, and national politics as we talk to politicians and voters to break down each week's biggest headlines. New episodes drop on Fridays. Listen and subscribe at WABE.org or your favorite podcast platform. WABE.